0: And when I say good morning, I'm saying to the people who are in the auditorium and to those who are uh, watching by television or listening or wherever you are, good morning or whatever time of the day it is that you're listening. Church has gotten so weird lately. It used to be simple. (laughs) Hi, you guys. That was it. Now it's got all these different venues you can get it at. Um, I I want to just, I I, I believe in the priesthood of all believers, but my underwear really is special. So (laughs) I, 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 I wanted to be clear about that. And I didn't know we had such a large Woodland Hills contingent in Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All right, Rob. Uh, it, it's good to be good to be here. Um, I, for, for me, the the, the thing that I got lost most in translation when what I missed the most in that year of lockdown was uh, being with other believers and worshiping together. Um, and I, 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 it, 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 you can get to worship anywhere you're at, in any place, at any time, or whatever, but uh, I find it's more challenging to do it in the living room watching a television than it is to do it, it's like there's an, a momentum, an encouragement, and I don't know, so thanks for being here in the room, those who can't be here in the room, and, uh, and being part of this worship experience, and God bless the folks who are entering into worship even though you're not in this room. Uh, that takes special discipline, and I appreciate that, the, the, that you're doing that, um, Yeah, so I've been away for a few weeks. Uh, I got a chance to go on vacation for the first time in quite a while, and that was really wonderful. Um, And we had these three weeks where we uh, showed messages from the Jesus Collective. And I hope that those of blessed you. Uh, We wanted to introduce you to this tribe, the Jesus Collective. We have for a long time been looking at a tribe. We dated a lot of different uh, uh, denominations. Not a lot, but several. Looked into them, and, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like... dating someone, and it's like, you're really pretty, but man, you come with a lot of baggage. <laughs> and so it, 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 that's kind of how we felt about some of this. Like, I don't know if you want to sign up for that. Uh, and, and even when people had the same beliefs as us, they didn't seem to have the same flavor, the same kind of cultural, uh, I don't know, this is something. Well, the Jesus Collective uh, is, is, this feels like our tribe, and it's, uh, it, it's really feeling like a blessing. So we're, we're pouring into it, and they're pouring into us. Uh, you might say, well, w- w- why is that so necessary? to be associated with other churches and stuff. Our conviction is that that the idea of being a solitary church, standing all by yourself without other relationships, is about as aberrant to the Christian faith as being an isolated individual and not being related to other people in, in the faith. In the kingdom, everything's supposed to be done in, in, a, in a togetherness. And uh, so, sometimes people say, well, why do you have to have organized religion? And first of all, I'd say, well, we're not a religion, and... We're not very organized, so I know what you're talking about. But uh, so, if you don't believe in organized religion, this is the church for you. But uh, um, but w- 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 why is that an important thing to have this kind of togetherness? And the answer is that we can, in the kingdom, things always work better when done in relationship with others, and we can do more together than we can ever possibly do alone. Uh, when we when, when we are uh, as a united body. Now, associated with other uh, bodies, uh, you can get more done for the kingdom. And then uh, and there's accountability and, and, and there's strength in numbers and, and all of that. So there's this things. Uh, our lives get to count more when we do stuff together. We have a bigger impact in the world and for the kingdom when we do it together. So I, I thank God for the Jesus Collective. and. Um, You'll hear more about them in the future. Uh, it's, it, this isn't like just one of those formal denominational alliances. These are the real relationships that are that, that we're developing with folks, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. I also wanted, to, before I get into my message, say one other preliminary word, and that's that we're doing this uh, fundraiser uh, to uh, uh, provide a space for for uh, settled this this wonderful ministry that is. Uh, if this takes off, and I think it will, it's just going to equip churches to actually make a difference on homelessness. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, the church got known to be the the body of people that care about the homeless, and so we're uh, building these tiny homes to create tiny home communities uh, for for folks to get out of homelessness. Uh, and we're working with a number of other churches a, 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 as we're doing that. So. Uh, it turns out that, that, uh, that Settled needs a hub uh, of sorts, a warehouse. And it turns out we've got 65,000 square feet that has been unused for the last 20-some years. And we've always been kind of wondering, what can we do with that? We can't afford to just, uh, we don't need that on our, right now on our own. And so we, will, we were asking, Lord, how would you want to use this? And this seems like it's a perfect uh, opportunity uh, for us to offer this to Settle to come and, and use this as their warehouse, to store materials here, um, to build the tiny homes here, to ship them out. And so we need to remodel that area, sections of that area. We need to get a, a, a huge garage door built into it. We need to get a forklift. We've got to get some spaces where we can store different kind of material. We've actually got a number of manufacturers who are wanting to donate material, sometimes expensive material. They, they want to be part of this. Uh, but we can't accept it because we don't have a place to store it. And so, so we're, our goal is to raise $65,000. We are right now at $51,000, right around there. So we've got $14,000 to go. And I know we're going to do it because we've always done it. <laughs> we've always, when it comes to making space, you guys have always stepped up. So if you haven't been a part of this yet, uh, we ask that you pray about it. That's all we ask is pray about it and then follow God's leading. And you can give, if you're in the room here, you can give uh, uh, the offering in, in, at the end of the service. Uh, or you can write, send it a check, just make out the, to the memo, uh, the uh, cre- uh, Making Space. What's the memo I'm supposed to put in there? Making Space, or is it Settled Community? Ask somebody who knows and they'll tell you. And, <laughs> and then you can also give online. And just make sure that you designate it as going to uh, the Settled Community Making Space campaign for the Settled Community, whatever it is that you're supposed to say. All right! Now I should move on to something I know what I'm talking about <laughs> the Bible. So we're uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be doing that for quite some time like till the Lord returns, Um, but we'll take breaks here and there. So we're starting a new series within the Sermon on the Mount series, and we're calling this uh, Against All Reason, for reasons that I think will become uh, clear here in a moment. So we'll pick up where we left off uh, several weeks ago, and so I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 38. We're going to read three verses here. We're entering a section on the Sermon on the Mount that is, I think, so important, in some ways the most important because it's the most challenging. And because it's the most challenging, it tends to be the most minimized, if not ignored. Uh, And so for the next several weeks, hunker down. I always want you to be hunkering down, but hunker down especially on this because this is really important stuff. Here's what it says. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do do not resist an evildoer, Rather, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. All right. Lord, open our eyes to receive the truth of this passage and apply it to our lives. Okay, I want to start by talking about a a, a certain exegetical principle, or that's a principle by which you interpret the Bible. It's a, a really important one. I think we get uh, tied up a lot on this. On the surface reading of this passage, and let's just be honest with what it seems to be saying on, on the surface. Um, Jesus says, you've heard it I, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, don't resist an evildoer. Don't resist an evildoer, really? Like, so if, if someone wants to murder somebody, we should just let them go. Uh, the rapist, the sex trafficker, just don't, don't resist them. Let them do what they want, really? If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other. Uh, does God want us to just suffer abuse? In fact, this seems almost like encourage abuse. Go ahead, hit me again. Is that really what uh, Jesus is recommending here? If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak also. Now, you've got to know that that coat is the outer garment that people would wear when it was kind of cool. The cloak is the inner garment. It's their underwear, and that's all the underwear they have. So Jesus is saying, if someone wants to sue you, and he doesn't say sue you for a just cause, for a rational reason, if they want to sue you for any reason, to the point where they're gonna leave you naked, let them do it. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) So you can always tell the true Christians because they're the ones who are walking around naked out there, right? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also a second mile. If anyone forces you, now they can only force you if they have some kind of authority over you. So here Jesus seems to be saying, hey, if some authority wants to get free labor out of you, offer to do twice as much as they ask. If some authority wants to abuse you, uh, then just go the second mile with them. Now, that seems to so go against this basic common sense that we instinctively— at least I instinctively think to myself, okay, the passage must mean something different than that. Because that doesn't seem at all loving. It doesn't seem to go to the pattern of Jesus. It it, it seems like arbitrary rules that just don't make any sense. It goes against all reason. So it must have a different meaning. But here's the thing. Here's the dilemma. We confess Jesus Christ as Lord, which means we don't confess our common sense as Lord. And when we enthrone common sense as Lord, which we do far more often than we think we do, but when we make common sense, our Lord, then what happens is all the edgy aspects of Jesus, all the confrontational, the challenging uh, aspects of Jesus, and most of the beautiful aspects of Jesus just get toned down. We, we, we end up, if we enthrone our common sense as Lord of our life, so then we're not going to believe anything that doesn't make sense to us to believe. Well, then what we end up with is a vanilla Jesus, a middle-of-the-road Jesus, a Jesus that conforms to all of our expectations, a Jesus that always agrees with us, hallelujah, a Jesus after our own image. But if we confess Jesus as Lord, we don't want a Jesus after our own image. We want the real Jesus, the radical Jesus. And so we commit to following Jesus even when our common sense says, this doesn't make sense to do this. I thought I'd get one amen out of that, but you know, it. <laughs> Everybody say amen. We follow Jesus even when it doesn't make sense. But here's the thing then does that mean that we have to believe that Jesus wants us here to uh, not resist an evildoer, let them have their way, that we should let someone sue us to the point of being naked, even if it's a, even if it's a frivolous lawsuit, and that we should let authorities abuse us? Because if, if, you, if you follow Jesus, we're not going to let, let our common sense you know, guide us. So is that what we have to believe? And if we say, well, no, we, we don't want you to uh, go that route, then someone could say, well, look, at it, Then it, it, if there must be a different meaning to this, even if maybe we don't, maybe don't know what it is yet, but it, it, Jesus can't mean what it seems like he's saying here. Well, then in two, three verses from now, which we'll get to next week, when Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you and do good to those who despitefully use you, why, why can not we just conclude that, well, Jesus can't mean what he's saying there. He uh, must mean something different, because that also defies common sense. But I want to say, no, there Jesus means exactly what he's saying. Love your enemies. And my concern is that what happens is that people think that, well, since we can't take the surface meaning of of, of this passage here, 38 through 41, well, then we can't take the surface meaning of when he says love your enemies or, or bless those who persecute you, or when he gives us his sexual ethics, or when there's anything that is inconvenient to us, we must just say, well, it must mean something different. Even if we don't know what exactly it means, and now we're back to having a vanilla Jesus that conforms to all of our expectations, and we don't want that. So we're in a dilemma here. Uh, how do we know when we're supposed to take Jesus at, at, at surface meaning, uh, at, at, at a surface level? Uh, the literal meaning? and how do we know when we're supposed to dig deeper? It's a very important question. Because uh, we don't want to just be in this position where we, I, I, I like this thing, so here Jesus means what he says, because I like it, and over here, He doesn't mean what he says because I don't like it. We, get, we don't want to go in that arbitrary route. It's a very important question we're dealing with here. But it's not, I don't think, that thorny of an issue. If we trust with all of our heart that God really is fully revealed uh, on the cross, that that fully reveals the character of God. So here's the thing, uh, and I don't have time to prove this here, but, but we teach this all, all all the time here at Woodland Hills. that All Scripture is supposed to point, lead to uh, the revelation of God on the cross. Uh, the cross sums up everything that, the whole biblical narrative, and, and we believe that not because we think it's, we have to like that, but because we believe that's what the New Testament teaches. Uh, if you haven't heard this before, it may sound kind of radical to you, I encourage you, if you want to dig into the reasons why we think this, uh, I've got about 100 pages on this in the book called Cross Vision. I've got over 200 pages on this in a book called Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and if you don't like to read, we've got a whole sermon series on it called, what was it called? It was called cross, uh, Cross-Centered. Cross-centered. So you can check out those sources if you need grounding on this. But see, here, here's the thing. So everything's supposed to point to the cross, and the cross does defy common sense. Because the message of the cross is the belief that the creator God, God Almighty, became a human being out of love for us and then entered into solidarity on the cross with our sin and with the God-forsaken consequences that follows that sin. God did that for us. That's, that's crazy. That's like unlike any kind of picture of God anyone's ever painted before. It's radically countercultural, but it's, it's, it, it's, it's uncommonsensical. It defies common sense because it's so loving. The love that's revealed on the cross is unfathomable, incomprehensible. Uh, it's ineffable, you know, unspeakable. It goes beyond anything we can imagine, and that's why it defies common sense. But the problem with Matthew 5, 38 through 41, which we're dealing with here today, is that is that, that also must point to the cross because all Scripture points to the cross. So it has to at least be consistent with the love of God that's revealed on, on, on Calvary. But the trouble with Matthew 5, 38-41 is that it doesn't reflect the love of the cross. Because there's nothing loving about letting someone abuse you. It's not, letting, it's not loving to you, and it's not loving to them. It's not loving to them because by letting them do that, you're communicating the message that this is an appropriate, appropriate way to treat people, and it's not. So what do, what, what do we do when we find a teaching of Jesus or really any passage of Scripture that doesn't line up with what we know about what's true with God as revealed on the cross? What do we do with passages that don't reflect uh, the love that's revealed on Calvary? The, The short answer here is that you have to keep on digging until you find an interpretation that is consistent with the message of the cross. Just keep on digging. Now, in case you think this is a Greg Boyd private little opinion thing here, I would like to point out to you that this actually goes back a long, long way. This this teaching that all Scripture must be consistent with the love that's revealed on Calvary, it actually goes back to at least as far as my old friend St. Augustine. And I don't quote him very positively very often, but I will this morning. Here's what he says. Once in a while, he got it right. Uh, He wrote, we find this expressed in a number of different places, but here's how it comes out in a book he wrote called Christian Doctrine. Augustine says, Whoever thinks that he understands the holy scriptures, or any part of them, but puts uh, such an interpretation on them that does not lend to build up the twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. Uh, if, if, if your interpretation of any passage of scripture isn't consistent, doesn't promote love of God and love of others, if it's not consistent with love, and love ultimately is defined by the cross. 1 John 3.16 Well then you haven't yet found the right interpretation. Augustine says that. Now Augustine also interpreted scripture in a way that he, he really did believe that God sometimes commands genocide. The slaughtering of massive populations including children and women and babies. He also believed that uh, God uh, commands the church to prosecute uh, persecute heretics. When Jesus says go out and compel them to come to the banquet. Uh, Augustine said, well, compel. He didn't say how to compel, so we can use fire if we have to. And, and here's where the church starts this old sad tradition of persecuting those that, that disagree with the church. Augustine believed that. Augustine believed that, that God uh, predestines the majority of human beings to, to, to burn in hell for all eternity. Now, if you ask me, that doesn't seem very loving. First I thing, uh, maybe this is my little quirky opinion, but, but how is it loving? Jesus says, love those who persecute you and, and, and uh, do good to those who despitefully use you. Well, how is burning someone alive doing good to them? I'm just curious here. I, and, and theologians get, you know, a lot of, it's the only theologians can do a lot of, you know, wordsmithing and dancing around to justify and redefine what love is and all the rest. My answer to that is, yes, well, how, how did Augustine believe both that everything must be consistent with love and also have this monstrous picture of God? My answer is, I don't know. Uh, but it just, it just, I think, bears witness to how capable we all are of believing contradictory things and what is in our interest to do so. It's, it's a testament to how, how strong our confirmation bias works. Confirmation bias is just the truth that we tend to notice what we, what, we, what we want to notice and what we expect to notice. We tend to see what we expect to see. And I think that's, that's true of Augustine. And so it leads to these contradictory positions. But when we find an unloving passage in the Bible, it doesn't seem consistent with, with uh, the revelation of God on Calvary. And I think that the portrayal of God as commanding genocide would, would go into that category. Uh, we explore to see how, and find an interpretation that is consistent with the cross. And, and, and you can do that in one of two ways. And sometimes you do both. First, You do some historical research. You look at the background of the passage. Look at the historical circumstances that the people were in. Look at the meaning of words and the idioms. And maybe you'll find something that will go, aha, now I can see how this, uh, though on the surface it doesn't seem to be consistent with the cross. If you dig down a little bit, you see that it actually is consistent. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is, is to consider the possibility that here, God is accommodating the perspective of the authors he's breathing through. Because God works not by means of coercion, but by influential love. He influences people as far as possible, but there comes a point where he has to just accept them as they are in all their fallibilities. And then he bears their faults, he bears their sin, uh, and then takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. And we believe that because that's what God does on the cross. God enters into total solidarity with our sin, and then now it takes on an ugly appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. And since that reveals what God's always been like, we read the Bible knowing that that's what God sometimes does. And so there's, we've come upon passages in the Bible where we have a sub-Christ-like conception of God. Uh, I encourage folks to consider the possibility that here, that passage is saying more about the people that God had to work with than it says about God. It says what they believed about God and what God had to bear as God's dealing with them, but it doesn't reflect what God's like because it's inconsistent with the cross, and the cross is the full revelation of God. Uh, What reveals God to us in those passages is that we can, if we look at him with the eyes of faith, the same faith we have when we see the cross as the full revelation of God, we can see that God's doing with his people back then exactly what he did on the cross. He's entering into their sin. He's bearing their sin and therefore taking on a semblance that, that, that reflects that sin. So those are the ways that we handle passages that don't seem beautiful. Now, when it comes to this teaching that we're dealing with here this morning, where on the surface it looks like Jesus is encouraging us to let ourselves be abused and sued and and whatnot. Um, Accommodation is not an option, I don't think, because we're talking about the Son of God, God incarnate. There's no sin to accommodate here. So, we have to look at the historical background, look, dig into it and see, are, ask, are there things in that were going on at the time that maybe will make sense of these passages uh, That, and that sense would be consistent with, with what we find uh, uh, revealed about God on the cross. So I'm going to do this now. I'm going to break this passage down and give it some background teaching on this. Uh, and I think you're going to see this in, in, a, in a different light. Uh, there's a number of scholars who argue the position I'll be advocating here, but probably the best single book I've read that deals with this is a book by Walter Wink, uh, called The Powers That Be And so if you want to dig deeper into this I encourage you to uh, check out that book I don't agree with Wink on a number of points I think his, his, his view of the atonement Is really inadequate And he doesn't believe that the, the powers have their own agency The principalities and powers and things like that But he's so insightful on in the historical background Of this stuff So if you want to dig deeper That's, that, that's where you want to go Okay, so now let's, let's pick it apart Ready? Are you ready? Can you handle the truth? <laughs> truth, you can't handle All right the context here, just to set the big picture, is Jesus is a Galilean Jew. Galilee he lives in Galilee. He's Jewish. He's is in, in the first century, and he's speaking to other first-century Galilean Jews. Uh, these are peasants, uh, and they are under the occupation of Rome. Rome occupies this whole area. They're run by Rome, and Rome can be brutal on peasants. But it wasn't just the Romans who were brutal on these peasants. Other wealthy Jews were brutal on these Galilean peasants. Uh, These wealthy Jews were working in cahoots with the the, the Romans, and they would rip off their own people. I'll say more about that here in a little bit. But that's the context. So so you've got to start thinking like a first-century Palestinian peasant Jew under the oppression of the Roman Empire and the wealthy bigwigs who are working with them. Uh, This teaching takes on a, a, a new light when you frame it in that context. Okay, Jesus says, first, he goes, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the uh, famous, it's called the lex telionis. Uh, It's the law of just retribution. You find it three times in the Old Testament and in two of the three times in the Old Testament, it's commanded, it's required. You must take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus comes along and he says, well, that was, that you've heard that said, that was what was taught, but I'm telling you, don't do that. Now, this, this tells you something about Jesus' own understanding of his own authority. Because Jesus, like all these Jews, believes that the Old Testament is, is inspired by God. And yet Jesus re- reserves for himself the right to modify it. So what does that tell you about how Jesus sees himself? He sees himself as being on a par with the God who inspired this, this whole thing. Uh, only God would have the authority to do that. It's quite astounding. And it suggests that Jesus is saying, okay, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth deal, that's the best God could get out of folks in the Old Testament. In fact, you find this teaching in almost all cultures, and what we find in the Old Testament is something of an improvement, so that you can see the Spirit working there to improve this, but it's the best that that God could could do. But now, with Jesus, we're having a new revelation of God, and a new revelation of of, uh, what God requires of his people. And that's why he says, don't do that. I'm going to give you a new teaching here. So to follow Jesus, you have to. This is fun to play on people who say, I, I follow every verse of the Bible. Oh, really? Because to follow Jesus, there's at least three verses you're going to have to ignore. <laughs> the ones that tell you to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because he says, don't do that. Now he gives us a new instruction. So the first instruction he gives is, do not resist an evildoer. Now here it's important to dig deeper and check out the meaning of words. The word he uses here is "antistemi." Antistami, It comes from anti, which means against, and stami, which means to stand. So it's a, to stand against something. Uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that, that was around in the time of Jesus, that word is the word that's always used when, when, when armies come to clash. It's a warfare term. Take a stand against the enemy, you stand them down. So it's not just get in the way of something or interfere with something, it's, it's a forceful resistance. So Jesus is saying, don't forcefully resist an evildoer or don't respond in kind. When someone afflicts you, don't don't retaliate. He's saying, don't do what these three verses in the Old Testament tell you that you're supposed to do. Get even with the person. Uh, No, you got to set all that aside. But he's not saying don't do anything. He's not saying don't interrupt an evildoer. Don't get in the way of an evildoer. Bear the brunt of an evildoer or whatever. Uh, No, he's just saying, don't respond in kind. because When you respond in kind, now you put yourself on the same level as the evildoer. You're no better off than, than, than they are. But he's not saying do nothing. And that's the important point. He's not saying do nothing. He's saying don't respond in kind. So as an illustration, he says, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other. Let him hit the other one as well. Now, is he just saying let yourself be abused? I don't think so. Um, it may be here that Jesus is just using hyperbole to uh, say in a hyperbolic way, uh, uh, abstain from all fighting. And so he's stating an extreme case hyperbolically to say, emphatically, I don't want you to get involved in any tussles and any retaliation thing. That's possible. But Walter Wink and a number of other scholars find something deeper going on, and I'm convinced that they're right. Uh, They notice that Jesus specifies if, if someone hits you on your right cheek, turn the other also. Why does he say right cheek? Well, here's the thing. And this is spoken from a perspective of a right-handed culture because most people tend to be right-handed. Lefties are there, but uh, that's the perspective here. So to hit someone on the right cheek, if you're right-handed, you have to use the back of your, it would be a slap. You hit them with the back of your hand. And in this culture, that was only done to humiliate somebody. If you're fighting an an enemy and you want to inflict harm on them, you don't slap them. Let's go to war. (laughs) Nasty slapper. Uh, No. If you're going to hit someone, you make a fist and you hit them on their left side. And so we know that Roman soldiers would use the slap to humiliate Jews. Because they could. It's a way of putting people in their place. Reminding them of their inferior status. And so some scholars argue then that Jesus is saying if someone does that to you, if a Roman soldier does that to you, well turn the other cheek as well to them. And and say what you're doing there is saying, if you're going to hit me, you have to hit me as an equal. It's a way of saying, I don't accept your humiliation. I will not be defined by your humiliation. I'm not going to internalize that. You want to hit me, go ahead and hit me, but you got to do it as an equal. And see, that response would be so surprising, so shocking. I mean, it would catch the, 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 whoever, the, the slapper off guard. Like, what? It's, it's, and see, that's the point. By, by doing the unexpected thing, you're breaking this pattern of... Of of retaliation, Um, you're interrupting this process. The guard expects you to be humiliated, and maybe to get really mad, and then he can do it again. Um, But when you respond by saying, "You're turning the tables," you're you're taking the initiative, and you're saying you're forcing them to see you as a human being. And so you do that out of love for yourself because you're made in the image of God, and you don't deserve to be treated in a humiliating, dehumanized way. But you also do it out of love for the other person because. To the degree that they think this is an appropriate thing and they're living off of this hierarchy, they are in bondage too. And by creating this space, this surprising space, uh, for them to see you in a different light, there's the possibility that they'll have a change of heart and realize the wrongfulness of what they're doing and repent of it. The shocking response creates this needed space. It opens the door for the aggressor to begin to see the error of his ways. You're breaking this pattern by doing the unexpected. So between violence and doing nothing, Jesus says, Here's an example of the kind of creative space you can create in in response to evil. Uh, Jesus offers a third way between doing nothing and getting violent. He offers this third way. And by the way, that's the title of the sermon is Jesus' Third Way Response to, to Evil. It disrupts the process. I shared this about six years ago. But I'll share it again because it's a, the clearest example I've had in my life so far of this happening. I, I pulled down this road, uh, actually coming home from a Saturday night service, and I was going to this one store, and so I pulled down this road and there's these two people on bikes that were almost in the center of the road. And I could tell immediately that they were both drunk because they were driving almost in the center of the road. <laughs> and they were wobbling in the process. So I go over to the other side of the road I have, I, I, in, in the lane that's facing oncoming traffic, but saying, thankfully there was none at this point, to get around them. And so I, I get around them, and then I pull into my convenience store. And just as I'm getting out of my car, I see the guy get off his bike, and I can tell he's madder than a hornet, and he starts charging at me with his fist raised and cussing up a storm. I mean, he would have done my dad proud. And so he, he comes over to me because my dad was a world-class cusser. Um, and, and he grabs me by the, the, the shirt like this, and I think he's going to hit me. I mean, he's, he's so mad. He's just sweating, and I can smell the booze on his breath. And he's accusing me of running his wife off the road. You were trying to run my wife off the road. You almost got her killed. And I know that that didn't happen. But I said, I, 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 I said sir, I'm really sorry. If, if I cut in too soon, I, it was inadvertent. I would never want to harm your wife. I tried, I constantly tried to, to really get around you guys. And, uh, um, and he, you know, he, he was very aggressive, but I, I, I was talking in this kind of calm voice. My heart was racing a mile a minute, but uh, I, see, I had practiced this at different times in my life and I practiced it in prayer. And that's an important point. You can't do something unless you practice it, rehearse it, because uh, what happens is we get triggered and then we get pulled into that cycle. That's how it works. You get triggered, and see, if, 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 if seeing this guy running at me with his fist like this, if I would have squared off against him, well, yeah, yeah, you want you, you want you want you want you want a piece? You stepping up? Well, that poor guy would have got his tail whipped. I mean, he would have end up in the hospital, and I don't want to do that to the guy. Probably not. One of us would have been in the hospital, but it probably wouldn't have been him. Um, but see, so, so I, I want to respond in the opposite. Whatever, this is the principle I want us to take away from this this morning. When someone's coming at you with a negative, whatever that negative is, respond in the opposite spirit. And you got to practice this if you're ever going to do it. Uh, when they come at you with aggression, you respond with gentleness. And, 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 and overcompensate for it. So I'm, I, I'm, being, I'm talking so calm and so nice. And it, and it confused him. As he's listening to me, like, sir, I really tried to, you know, I'm really being nice and sweet. And he's like, he has a puzzled look on his face. It's kind of funny looking back at it at the time. I was terrified, but, but he's puzzled. And then when, when I, I finally finish, he, he says, are you mocking me? He thinks. And then now he winds up like he's really going to co-cock me. And I'm getting ready for this. And so I, I just say, you can go ahead and hit me, but I can't fight you back. And that really, like, what? <laughs> what do you mean you can't? I said, I'm not allowed to. What do you mean you're not allowed to? I said, I'm a follower of Jesus and he, 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 he forbids me to ever fight. So you can hit me, but it's not going to be very much fun because I, I can't fight you back. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> and, and he was just so, he, he was just, he just stared at me for, for you know, a number of seconds and then he finally he just goes, Oh, so you're a wuss. <laughs> I, you can call me whatever you want, but just don't hit me. <laughs> Anyway, he walks away. See, if I had responded the way he expected me to respond, there would have been a brawl. But by doing the unexpected thing, a thing that's consistent with love, uh, you, break, you, you, you you put a pause in the process. You interrupt the whole process. You give God, space for God to work. And uh, uh, violence is avoided. Same thing when Jesus says, if, if someone sues you, if they want your coat, your outer garment, give them your, your, your cloak as well. If they want to take take your clothes, give them your underwear as well. Uh, Here's the background of this. Through the corrupt practices of of, uh, landowners, wealthy folks, working in cahoots with the Roman government, working in cahoots with the legislators of the Sanhedrin and things like that, over time, these peasant farmers who used to have their own farms, uh, the land got gobbled up. It was now owned by all these wealthy landlords, and now now these folks had to rent the land. And if they couldn't afford to rent the land, then the, the wealthy folks would take their house. And they, 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 they kept these folks in, in abject poverty by charging exorbitant rent for, for these folks. And they could get away with it because the law was on their side. And so uh, they could take your, first they could take the land, they could take the house. Uh, if, if you couldn't make those payments, then they could take your farm animals. Uh, if you couldn't, if you still are in debt, they could take your kids and, and consign them into, into slavery. Uh, the one thing they weren't allowed to do was to take the coat off your back because that was inhumane. Uh, if people need, on cold nights, they need something to keep them warm. So they weren't allowed to take the coat off them. Uh, but see, here's the thing. What Jesus is saying here is that even if they break the law and, and, and want to take your, 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 your coat, your outer garment, well then give them your inner garment as well. Give them your underwear as well. The, the, the question here is this. How do you respond to injustice when you lack the power or really any hope of changing the system in the near future? What do you do? Jesus says, in that case, you don't rise up violently, and that's inconsistent with the character of God, but you also don't do nothing. You inch the process forward by, by calling attention to the evil that's going on here. And notice Jesus doesn't say, offer them your underwear. He says, give it to them, right? And this is all taking place in the court. So you want my coat? Fine. Then you just strip down naked and give them that as well. Now, here's the thing. In this culture, nakedness is shameful. Except between spouses, nakedness is, is, is shameful. But it's more shameful on the people who view it than the, the person who's naked. That's why in, in Genesis 9, uh, Ham, who's the son of Noah, Noah gets drunk and he passes out and he's naked. And his son sees him naked, the shame is on him. That's how it worked here. So by getting naked, and that's that takes some good spot. But by getting naked like this, you're bringing shame on the whole system. You're exposing the shamefulness of this whole system. And, uh, and really what you're saying is, this is what this system does to us poor folks. And, and it, it, it's shameful, and I'm not going to try to cover it up, that shamefulness, by hanging onto my underwear. No. Have it all. You're turning the tables. You're taking the initiative. You're not being defined by the system. You're pushing up against that. And it's the same thing when Jesus says, if, uh, someone, wants, if someone forces you to go a mile, offer to go to the second one. What he's saying there is this Roman guards had the authority to uh, grab hold of any uh, Jewish citizen they wanted and, and force them to carry their gear for one mile. Uh, a lot of these, these uh, consigned uh, soldiers uh, or conscripted soldiers didn't have their own horses, and so they had to carry their own stuff. And it's heavy. So they would just grab on someone. hey, you, carry my stuff. This is what happens with Simon of Cyrene. Uh, when Jesus is carrying the cross and, and he's starting to, to falter under it, um, they just grab hold of this guy, Simon of Cyrene, and say, okay, you carry the cross. They had the authority to do that. It's just abusive. So Jesus says, well, if they force you to go one mile, just go the second mile. He doesn't say ask for permission or anything. He says just do it. Now, why? Well, because the minute you, the minute you choose to go a second mile— Whatever satisfaction that guard was getting over the fact that he has the authority to force you to go a mile, oh, aren't you great? Now you're an equal because now you're choosing to do it. He's not forcing you. You've you've taken the initiative. And that would scramble up his head. That's a shocking response. He'd he'd, he'd be puzzled. He'd wonder, is he being nice or is this person trying to get me in trouble by breaking the law? Maybe the person would be saying, can I have my gear back? Give me my gear back. But see, now he's talking to you as an equal because you're choosing to do this. You see, so this isn't a manual a how-to on, 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 on how to have a third-way response to evil. I, I, I don't want anyone in Woodland Hills literally repeating any of these things. It worked in his culture, but if you stripped out naked in Jesus' name in our court of law, it's not going to have the same effect as it had in the first century. Sing. <laughs> you, you have to contextualize all these things. But what, but, but what all these illustrate is, that, is this. That between violence and nothing is a world of creative possibilities. And that's the door we shut the minute we pull a gun out. This is why violence, and we're so, our culture has gotten so addicted to violence. Uh, the homicide rates are just going skyrocketing. But see, when you're addicted to violence, it kills your imagination. You think that the only solution is to pull out a gun. and. Uh, Jesus is saying, no, there's a world here. Uh, if you create a space, a pause, follow the Spirit's leading, respond in unexpected ways, do outlandish things, what well, creates a space where they, they you not only do it for your own sake, but you're creating a different perception of yourself. When we respond in kind, a hit for a hit, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, all we do is confirm in the mind of the aggressor that they were justified being the aggressor. They already obviously have something against you, that's why they're being an aggressor. When you respond in kind, they just feel self-righteous and justified. See that that's the kind. You, you, you play into that narrative. So then you retaliate, then they retaliate, and that cycle goes on and on and on. And that's the stupid game that humanity's been playing for the since the fall. We are called to be a people who break that process, who interrupt that process, who, who don't go to that false narrative of either it's violence or nothing. Uh, who, who trust on the, 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 the imaginative the power of God to create, create a space for people to see you different, to bring about a heart change. So, so don't respond with violence. Don't respond by doing nothing, but follow the Spirit and respond in ways that keep you from being defined by the evil that's being pushed against you. See, if you respond evil with evil, now you're giving your aggressor the authority to define you. And, and, and we're not to let anyone define us other than Jesus Christ. And so... Since Jesus Christ defines us, we have to respond in a Jesus kind of way. We respond in a way that is, it's loving towards us, but it's also loving towards the aggressor because it opens up the possibility that they might, in fact, change. And in doing all of this, we're acting consistent with the love of God that's revealed on Calvary. And Jesus' teaching here, what's understood in its historical context, I think, is perfectly consistent with the love of God that's revealed on Calvary. So I want to end with this question. Uh, who has something against you? I just can't think of one person. Um, they have some, something negative I want to encourage you to Think of that person right now And, and, and uh, ask the Holy Spirit To maybe show you How you could respond Differently to this, to, to this person And it will involve This is antistamine It's not using force against them But it will involve I, I encourage you To do the opposite Of whatever they're doing to you Whatever spirit they bring to you Then you go overboard In the opposite way Because the contrast Is what opens up the eyes To see you in a different light. So they come at you with aggression. You respond by just having such gentleness. Someone at the office is gossiping about you, saying nasty stuff about you. Well, go ahead and talk about them behind their back too, but say nice stuff. Especially when you hear someone report to you, you know what they said about you? Think of something positive to say. Just respond in the opposite way. If, If they're cruel towards you, overwhelm them with your kindness. If they have a scowl, respond with a smile. If they're being stingy to you, respond with outrageous generosity towards them. If they pull out a gun on you, run. <laughs> 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 I, I will say this. There are, there are times, and this is, I don't want anyone to get the impression that a good Christian doesn't run away. There are times where you say you need to run. Okay, that's not. That's okay. Jesus actually ran. Uh, the crowd was there. He was too tired. He, I gotta get a boat. Uh, so it's, there's times where you got you can run. But when you're in the situation such as these folks were in first century uh, Palestine, uh, there's no running away. So the question is, how are you going to respond to what's in front of you? No, they, they pull out a gun off from up high, and that actually is a real life account of somebody who actually did this. It, Offer them a pie. It's a h- really hard to shoot someone when they're offering you a pie. So if you're in a dangerous neighborhood, make sure you have a pie and carry it around with you. So your assignment this week, knows, your assignment this week is to spend some time uh, thinking about who has something against you, a negative against you, and praying about how you could respond in a way that isn't violent, doesn't do violence, does, not, does, not violent in word or deed or thought, um, but rather is consistent with the love of Christ. Something that's surprising, something that's different. And, and watch how that changes things. The love of the cross is the most powerful force in the universe because it's the only force that can take an enemy and transform them into a friend. Amen? Amen. And so, you know, in the end, the only hope for this world is when people realize that the only way to overcome evil, the only way to overcome hatred is, is to, to, to love it out of the planet. Uh, responding with hatred, to hatred, it just increases the hatred. Uh, Can we be a people who are bold enough to say we will always respond to hate with love? Uh, We always walk in the way of the cross. We'll always be reflecting the character of God. No ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, It doesn't depend who we're we're seeing, what we're doing. Stay in the zone of Calvary-like love. Amen. I'll close in a prayer here. I'm supposed to make one announcement, and that is that as you are... um, Oh, I, I, no, the prayer is available uh, at the end of the service here. And, and so if you could use prayer for anything, whatever you're carrying with you, don't carry it alone. I encourage you to, to, to get uh, prayer for that. Uh, don't, we have gathering uh, groups online, and uh, uh, I encourage folks to participate in that where they talk about the sermon and go deeper with it. We also have the MuseCast on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock. And they also go deeper with the message, and so you can tune in on that. And also, finally, uh, if you're going to be here next week in-house and you have children, make sure you call ahead of time and reserve some space so we know how many workers to put back there and and things of that sort. All right? we you just stand, and I'll close with this. Abba, Father, thank you for pouring your wisdom out on us. Help us to have the character to receive it and to live it out in all of our relationships, good or bad. Help us to respond with the love that you've revealed to us on the cross. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. God bless you, Padres. See you next week.